Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a real estate investor. I was about to say I'm a real estate broker, but I'm not a real estate broker. I'm a mortgage agent, but I'm sitting beside a real estate broker, my buddy, Daniel Foch. Dan, how's it going? And what are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about the news. Uh, back to another Ron Burgundy episode. Um, torch, are we going to make this joke every time? No, we can't. It's yeah, too much. Unique New York. <laughs> and the news, in a lot of cases, now comes from or is, is also digestible in newsletter format. So make sure you subscribe to the newsletter that we've done in partnership with Patter, which is in the show notes. Um, and there'll be a lot of other cool stuff coming out from Patter in the future. Um, we also have events second Tuesday of every month in many cities across Canada, 12 different cities across Canada. Um, October 10th is the next date for an event. If you want to meet some real estate investors, um, the course registration is closed, but if you want to, um, join a waiting list for the next one, realestateinvestingcourse.ca and also check out our merch links for all of these things are in the show notes, but we're not going to do a long, intro today. We're going to get right to the news. Yeah, because we've got a lot of news to cover. So let's start things off by looking at uh, a Globe and Mail article here. Canada needs 3.45 million more homes by 2030 to cut housing costs as population grows. And that is a prediction from CMHC. A new report from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, CMHC, says that Canada needs 3.45 million more homes to bring housing costs down as the population continues to increase. That is in addition to the 1.68 million homes that are expected to be built by 2030 if the pace of construction remains the same. If Canada continues to admit record levels of about half a million new permanent residents per year, CMHC predicts the number of new homes required will raise to 4 million. Dan, let's talk about this. 4 million new homes. Where's the labor coming from? Yeah, it's a great question. Also, where's the capital coming from? Because um, it's too expensive to build houses right now. And that's at record high housing costs. So um, I, I just, things are breaking at this point, right? There's no disputing that the economy isn't functioning the way that it properly should. Um, we have excess demand for real estate in Canada. And typically, excess demand should lead to the creation of more housing. So, for example, if more people want to buy houses than there are houses, then we should build houses for them to buy. But builders are no longer building houses for them to buy because they can't afford to build them even at the rates that those buyers are willing to pay and the buyers are no longer really looking to buy them because interest rates are so expensive and we've seen and stuff we've presented on this show um condos are losing money you know all, all the the new condo buyers are losing money from that report from um urbanation which actually you know they're cash flow negative but the investment isn't viable from a, from a lot of for a lot of people something needs to change at a national provincial and federal or and a local level to make the economics of housing make sense yeah it's 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 bad. You know, I think we've, we've found ourselves at this stalemate where we've got ample land, um, uh, dozens of amazing home builders, more than capable of developing suburbs and condos across the country, purpose-built rentals, you name it. And they're not doing it for the sole reason that it doesn't make economic sense to do so. So they are land banking, not to be confused with land bank advisors, our amazing debt brokerage company. And if you need construction financing, give me a shout. 
But developers are sitting on their land that they likely own in cash. They likely own flat out and had purchased in cash and are now just sitting and waiting for a better economic time to go and build housing, which is very expensive to build and takes a while. So when you've disincentivized the one people that may be able to solve this problem or at least get us closer to the solution, how is that helping? Yeah. So I don't know if all developers are doing what you just described. I would say that probably a big portion are the ones who can afford to sit on land and wait until the economics make sense to go after building projects. But I think a lot of um, developers who perhaps overpaid for land and are are bleeding out much like other buyers are because when you buy, when you're developing, you buy typically on a variable interest rate and you usually get something called an interest reserve, which is when they add all of that interest to the end of your term. And the developers are burnt, have burned through those interest reserves and now are up for renewal and similar to many people who are in the individual ownership space are impacted by huge rate increases and can't renew. And so there's a portion of the developers who are what you're describing, just sitting on land waiting. And then there's a portion who probably are going to experience financial stress and hardship and, mm-hmm. and those projects are going to be canceled um, for, for worse reasons. Now, speaking of incentivizing developers. That is a wonderful segue into the next point that we're going to talk about here. Dan, something was removed. Tell me about it. Yeah. So Ottawa recently removed GST from new rental construction in response to the rising cost of living. In an announcement on Thursday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said in the the federal sales tax would be removed from new rental construction effective immediately, reviving a promise that the Liberals made in 2015. There in we go. Federal, I told you to keep election. my promises. Eight, it just takes eight years. Eight years. Um, <laughs> oh, and, you know, it is a shame because had they done it in 2015... Um, we living in a different world right now. I we think. would be. And a big part of that is because um, the cost to build in 2015 was, you know, so it was half what it is today. Lower. Right? Yeah. And so... It really would have helped bring much needed supply on. And you can't, like, now we're at a too late scenario. It, mm-hmm. it really is, from my perspective, politics aside, this is just too little, too late. It's not going to move the needle. Um, and, and we can quantify that. Like, we'll get into the banter of it. Let me finish the the reading. So they, they dropped that um, 2015 federal election uh, promise um, in the future platforms. Ontario announced it would be removing the provincial sales tax on new builds as soon as possible. And Trudeau encouraged other provinces to do the same. So do you think this is going to help? I think it is a very small step in the right direction, but I, again, not to get political. I think, I think this has ulterior motives, right? This seems to be a very timely announcement. Again, something that was proposed eight years ago that, that could have had of real and meaningful impact if it had been imposed eight years ago and we had seen developers take advantage of this over the course of almost the last decade that we're talking about um yeah all it know. took was po- all it took was polls that's what you know like yeah like all they needed was to be losing in the polls like and oh and then okay so now you're losing oh now now good stuff happens. now now those promises that uh, i like that it's like a month them. yeah it's like a month after it was like oh housing isn't a primary federal responsibility it's, and then it's like the rhetoric is now just, it's the the yeah, <laughs> federal like responsibility it, so that i mean look i we don't get political on the show for for a number of reasons and we're not going to start doing it today 
I, you know, I think it might be a bit of a red herring, like, hey, look over here. I'm, I'm doing good things for housing, which is a hot topic. I mean, I'm not going to complain about it. I think it's, I think it's great. I just think we need more. This is not nearly enough. Yeah. So to quantify that, and, and I, I have seen like um, Kendall from Wexford Developments uh, on Twitter mentioned that he felt that it would unlock hundreds of thousands of units to ma- make them more well, what economical. Was it? It, it's, it's a decent chunk of change per unit. I don't quote me on this, but it's like it's something like 40 something thousand no that's that's development charges that you're thinking of so it's 5.5 percent of the total cost structure of housing is how much it improved by so hst or sorry gst is and and we did a whole episode on how the government is responsible tax and chart government fees and charges are responsible for 31 percent of the cost structure Mm -hmm. of new housing but this is just 5.5 percent of the cost structure of a new house and so it's not it's not meaning it's not extremely meaningful but it's not meaningless either and and i don't if in let's just use so so kendall who mentioned this it would unlock th- hundreds of thousands of units as a developer in alberta and this is on twitter it would it would do that in alberta because there are projects that are within 5% of being economical in alberta in toronto there are no projects that are in, mm-hmm. within 5% of yeah. being economical like it's not going to move the needle in the large markets where the land co- there are so many other competing factors that are further dwindling the margins such as uh, massive development charges huge land costs construction costs being 30 or 40% higher than they are in in some other cities um and so while it will help and it might help some of those other markets be competitive in keeping their affordability low it's not i don't think it's going to do really anything at a national level honestly i just don't i think that that there's a lot more work to be done but i do think it creates a little bit of le- necessary leadership that shows provincial governments um, and municipal governments that if the fed can start waiving fees in order to get housing done and they're willing to put their money where their mouth is other governments will have to do the same thing and that's how leadership should work so hopefully it has that impact um, and I and I do really think, and this is one thing that I would say for people to watch very closely, the the first municipality to meaningfully decrease development charges is going to be the most compel- competitive municipality um, for the foreseeable future. Um, I totally and agree. Pr- and it should be a race. That should be, they, yeah. The provinces should be actively yeah. trying to do that. So, and purposeful rental, just for everybody, um, for everybody's, you know, um, information, I guess, is, is buildings that are built. Uh, for the purpose of rental. They're, they're apartment, apartment buildings. And we saw a lot of these built in the 60s, 70s. A lot of our housing stock is from that. A lot of our rental housing stock is from that. Um, right now, most of the things that are being brought into the rental pool are condos, right? And it's being bought by money-losing investors like we've discussed. And we need, I think it's good for the economy to have institutional large companies becoming these landlords and developers of housing. And a lot of them use MLI Select uh, mm-hmm. CMHC financing, which if you ever want to use that, give Nick a shout because you're doing a lot of de- MLI select deals. Right a lot now, of deals you? across the country. Yeah, yeah it's pretty exciting. Before we move on from the GST stuff here, Dan, I did pull something from uh, Grant Thornton, which did a really great kind of short takeaway from it. I'd like to just quickly go through that before we move on, provide a bit more detail. The article from Grant Thornton goes on to say, an enhanced rebate is proposed to be available to landlords of residential rental buildings as the federal government announces relief for the goods and services tax, that's GST, on the construction of purpose-built rental housing. This debate, which is effective, immediately will apply to certain apartment buildings, student housing, and senior residents built for long-term rental accommodation. So those are some pretty great asset classes that we're seeing in there. 
Specifically, the enhanced rebate will apply provided that construction begins on or after September 14th, 2023. So if you're listening to this, uh, this is after that date already and before December 31st of 2030 and has to be completed by December 31st of 2035. Those dates seem a bit arbitrary. I'm sure they'll be changed or something along those lines. Um, the federal government announces these changes on September 14th in response to recent calls to action with respect to housing affordability across Canada. Legislation related to these changes hasn't been tabled yet. However, it's expected that the excise tax will be amended to allow for that new rebate. So if enacted, the proposal would increase the rental rebate from 36% to 100% of the GST uh, and federal portion of HST. The proposed relief also removes the existing GST phase-out threshold for qualifying purpose-built rental housing pro- uh, projects. Rental buildings must generally contain at least four self-contained apartments for re- uh, for residential units to qualify. And so this is good. It's this is like it really works for small cap investors like our audience who want to want to be building two or sorry four, five, ten. 20 unit buildings mm-hmm. um, you know a lot of this missing middle stuff a lot of these are opportunities that are accessible for regular investors buying especially with policy going more towards duplex uh, uh, fourplex a lot of missing middle policy in residential neighborhoods go buy a 50 by 120 lot and put a fourplex on it and you can you no longer have to pay HST in a lot of cases we're seeing DCs waived and if you go to five units you can get MLI select and it says I think student and senior housing would have to contain at least 10 units it's almost an incentive to to do that student and senior housing at, at 10 units that sounds like a pretty great investment mm-hmm. yeah I mean if you can do it so the building must also contain at least 90% long-term residential units to qualify so no short-term rentals the enhanced rebate doesn't apply to substantial renovations or existing residential properties as it's intended to increase overall housing supply so it would have to be a ground-up development now, builders are already entitled to input tax credits on their costs of construction. Those who ultimately sell or decide to act as landlords for these newly constructed buildings are required to charge or otherwise remit their GST, HST on the fair market value on first occupancy or substantial completion of the building, whichever is later. The use of the residential units in the apartment building for long-term rental represents the use of the building in an exempt supply. Thus, the GST and HST forms a cost on completion for landlords. So prior to these changes, only um, a small group of people, non-for-profits, co-ops, etc., were able to get a full rebate on GST. Um, and then the federal government has also called on provin- uh, provincial governments to remove their provincial sales taxes in line with the federal relief. The Ontario and Newfoundland and Labrador governments have followed up with their intentions to remove that provincial portion, which would bring it from 5.5% to, let's say, almost double. So in Ontario, it would be a 10% discount. That's And a lot of people That's are meaningful like, change. yeah, it would be, yeah, for sure. And I, and I think a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, well, this is just putting more money in greedy developers' pockets. It's like, well, you know what? I'm I so mean, sick and tired but, of that. <laughs> but, the, you know, look, I mean- Okay, you get to create thousands of houses and it creates housing affordability for thousands of people. Are you upset that one person get is going to get rich? Not even rich. They're already rich. They're richer, they're <laughs> slightly richer in the process. Like really, I mean, it, I don't understand that the mentality. Really, it's it's hard for me. Um, but also like, the, you know, and people are like, oh, it's not going to make, make it. They're not going to capitalize into the structure. If it makes more supply get... The only way to deal with excess demand is either shut off that demand, which is, you know, not something any of levels of government have said they're willing to do or increase supply. And this is, here we are, 
right? So anyway, I think we've... Yeah, no more banter on this. I think we've yeah, we're exhausted good. this one, right? So, okay, so let's keep moving. We've got a couple other uh, great articles to get to. This one is from Stories. Uh, variable versus fixed. Here's how mortgage payments stacked up over the past two years. Wouldn't be a Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast episode unless mortgages came up at least a few times, I guess, these days. Variable rate mortgage holders have been at the mercy of the Bank of Canada over the past year and a half. A new report from rates.ca digs into just how bad that pain really is. The insurance, credit card, mortgage comparison platform outlined two mortgage scenarios, one in which a variable rate holder took out a five-year insured mortgage of $500,000 at 1.25% in July of 2021, and another in which a fixed rate holder took out the same mortgage at the same time, but locked in a rate at 1.99. So again, we've got a variable rate holder at 500,000 at 1.25 and a, that person with the same mortgage, same amount, but they've locked in at a fixed at 1.99. Dan, what does the data show? The data shows us that 10 rate hikes in, the individual had chosen the variable rate mortgage, paid $23,579 more as of September, 2023. So that's still a while back from July, what was it? July, 2021 to September, 2023 in cumulative interest as compared to what they would have paid had the rate remained unchanged. This means the variable rate holder had to shell out 63% more total interest than wow. the fixed rate mortgage holder Yeah, and would have surpassed the total amount of interest paid by the fixed rate holder by November of last year. Um, so about halfway through. Um, and variable rate mortgage surged in popularity when interest rates were at rock bottom during early days of pandemic. As a result, variable rate quotes escalated to a 57% total share of mortgages um, on rates.ca. And I think CMHC, was it CMHC or the Bank of Canada who published that it was like 61, I think it peaked at 61% of the total mortgage. And now it's down to like, uh, well, it says on rates.ca, it's down to 26%, but I think something like 95% of people are taking the five-year fixed right now, yeah. which makes sense, the cheaper rate. Yeah. I mean, this this just hurts, right? And and the worst part about this, and we'll obviously continue to cover this as, as this situation, because it is a situation, unfolds over the next two years as a lot of these people with these low rates, whether you're fixed or variable, um, specifically fixed, are coming up for renewal and they're going to see that rate hike. Um, they're going to experience it drastically it's not going to be like that variable that's been stepped up this is going to go you might go from a 199 to a 599 overnight um you know i i feel for the people out there listen I, we deal with it all the time people on variables are are hurting right now there's there's no way um there's no way about it and you start to see the amount of interest you're paying remember because a mortgage is broken up into two payments principal and interest the principal goes against that's actually you owning more of your house every time you pay principal down whereas interest is you paying money to the bank for the bank being kind enough to let you borrow that money the bank or the lender whoever and to see that you know you are paying so much more in interest than you are in principal it just hurts that's all i gotta say about it yeah for sure hit me with this next one here this next one is is just as cheery as the last one, Dan. Uh, half of Canadians think they will never be able to buy a home. So according to a new report prepared by Oxford Economics for MPC, that's Mortgage Professionals Canada, 48% of non-homeowners think that they will never be able to purchase a primary residence. And that figure has climbed 15% since December of last year. 
Meanwhile, just 17% of non-homeowners indicate that they are planning to buy a principal residence in the next two years. That share has dropped five points over the last six months. So consumer sentiment is not good. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are feeling really squeezed by the economy right now. Um, So of the proportion of non-owners who still have plans to buy at some point in the future, 77% say they have to adjust their purchasing plans given current interest rate realities. Well, 30% say they will delay their purchasing plans indefinitely. We've got a great little chart here, Dan. Why don't we why don't we go over this a little bit? Sure, yeah. So it says, if mortgage interest rates behave as you expect, how will this impact your decision to buy or sell in the next few years? Um, and so 30% of non-owners would delay. 20% of owners uh, with their decision to sell, they would have to buy a less expensive property. Um, a lot of owners, 42%, say it would have no impact. Um, and the remainder is um, whether or not it would speed up or they'll have to get into a longer amortization period. And that's between 10 and, or I guess nine and 14% for non-owners or owners. Um, and so I guess you're seeing, you know, again, that's one telling me what consumer expectation is of rates to do, but also that, you know, this is starting to put a little bit of financial stress on existing owners and buyers and changing how we interact with real estate. For sure. So, I mean, for the current homeowners, the sentiments are just dismal with 7% indicating to MPC for the study that they are considering selling because they can't afford their current mortgage rate. So people are literally being forced to sell their homes because they can't afford the rate. Well, that figure may not seem elevated at first. The report goes on to say that it surged more than three times because that's from that's up that 7% figure is up from 2% just one year ago. Yeah, it is funny because, you know, you saw the same thing. Like a lot of people were reporting on the CMHC thing that came out. Well, it didn't come out recently. It came out in like March, but we, and we covered it on the show from the uh, the last time CMHC did a survey like this, but everyone's like, oh, 24% of mortgage holders can't afford to keep up with their payments, other, other payments, not their mortgage payments, by the way, but everyone's making it sound like it's their mortgage payments. But also that data came out in like Q2 or Q1. We've, we've covered it on this mm-hmm. show, but it's just funny how these things begin to make the round when everyone's get everyone's all feeling bearish because in the spring, everyone was like, oh, it's a bull run, baby. So, so let me just jump in here for a second. So MPC, Mortgage Professionals Canada, they just had a large conference in, in downtown Toronto. Uh, my lovely partner, Danielle Gibson, on, on the residential mortgage side of things attended and she reported back and I was like, Danny, what's going on over there? How was it? And Dan, you know how usually these... Whether it's very raw, raw, very, yeah. I mean, you're not Tony Robbins standing up and clapping kind of thing, but, uh, but they're very positive. They're supposed to invoke, you know, get people to fire it up and go out and sell mortgages. It, literally. Oh, and I mean, it's the same thing for real estate, but this was, she was like, no, this was the first time where like every panel, every speaker, every speech was bearish. Everyone was just saying, Hey, things are kind of bad right now and they're about to get a hell of a lot worse and that seemed to be the resounding message from that conference so very interesting to see that that sentiment has now kind of just gotten right out into the open and uh seems to be more accepted than than it has been at least for the last several months or, or years that means the bottom's almost in i guess starting so. to see the despair man. here we go anyway sorry back to you no i mean that i think that's an important data point right you look at mutual fund flows i think that uh so mutual fund flows are like so good at timing exactly the opposite of what 
people should be doing. Like <laughs> everybody rushes into the market when it's at the peak and everybody rushes out of the market when it's at the bottom. Classic. I really do think that consumer sentiment around real estate is almost identical. If you inverse what everyone else is doing, you'll actually be a very successful There's investor. There's a quote about that. What is it again? Oh, be greedy when others are fearful. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Maybe be fearful when others are greedy. That's it. There, there you go. So MPC warns that the next three years, we'll see a wave of mortgage renewals with 19% of current borrowers expecting to renew over the next year and 65% expecting to renew over the next three years. Yikes. Unsurprisingly, 69% of mortgage holders express concerns that they will be renewing at higher rates. And I can understand why. I don't really see us ever going back to rates that most of those people got mortgages at. Despite the challenging financial circumstances, the report indicates that only 5% of current mortgage holders are paying less than the amount required by their lenders. I don't know if that's true. Didn't like it come out today that TD has like 48% of um, their stuff with over uh, 25% amortization? Yeah. Anyway. TD's special these days. It is a survey as well, whereas mm-hmm. like all, it's not even just TD, all of the banks, um, Hanif um, from, from uh, wawa.ca published that thing that I turned into a chart for um, for TikTok, but mm. it shows the percentage of books. And actually, um, Simon and, and Braden cover this a lot on Canadian bank stocks on the Canadian Investor Podcast. There's a lot of risk there um, with Canadian banks and these negative amortizing loans. And they have to solve these problems. Like at some point, they have to say to these people, hey, you got to be paying your mortgage down and or you need to not be a client anymore. <laughs> and um, that's going to be tough. I wouldn't want to be making those phone calls. Uh, a close to third of mortgage holders say that they are paying a higher amount than required by their lender. This was especially true for borrowers with variable rate products, as well as borrowers in Ontario and BC. In those respective cases, 41% and 36% and 35% of borrowers report paying more than the amount required. All of this information was taken uh, from 1,950 respondents across the country. So you're right, Dan. We have to be taking this data with a grain of salt, um, you know, comparing it to other stuff. But overall, I mean, the numbers could be a few points off, but overall, the sentiment speaks for itself. For sure. Next up, we got Canada no longer has the in lowest inflation in the G7, and it's set to accelerate. This is from Shocker. Better Dwelling. It, yeah, it was, stop smiling. Why are you smiling? <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm smiling. Um, this would be very unfortunate if you were certain politicians who took a victory lap when CPI hit 2.6%. and ignored a victory lap. That was like a victory sprint immediately and, tweeting, hey, we're doing so good. And ignoring that, uh, well, it is funny because both the US government and the Canadian government at the same time said that they had the lowest inflation in the G7 because- They got to get new social media managers or something. I, like <laughs> Anyway, the CPI varies so much on a country to country basis. That first of all, you can't even really use it as a comparison. Like it's not the same basket of goods. It's not the same measurement system, et cetera, et cetera. Also, from a proxy, the closest is the closest to the U.S. CPI is CPI trim, which or um, sorry, CPI core CPI. Mm. Um, and so they the U.S. measured their CPI, which was three at that time, against our core, which was three point two, and had the same celebration that Canadian. Anyway, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Is pa- politicians patting themselves on the back for something that? isn't even within what they're supposed to do. Like they, they're supposed to be respectful of the difference between the central bank and the, and like the two different branches. Anyways, like you said earlier, we don't, we don't get into politics, but I do think it is very funny. And I think that it is a little bit scary. Um, It's like bad irony. just, just bad. it, It just, it just tells me like economics is complicated and a lot of people don't understand it exceptionally well. So Canadian inflation is heading in the wrong direction. 
headline CPI saw annual growth climb 0.7 percentage points to hit 4.0% in August. It was the second consecutive month to see inflation rise after bottoming 2.8% annual growth in June. Core inflation strips away volatile components like energy and is preferred by the central bank. Even by this measure, CPI and uh, median and trim is still moving higher. Excluding volatile components, we still saw inflation accelerating, meaning this is a broad issue. And it is an issue. Um, and the bond market, which dictates your fixed mortgage rates, seems to agree that it's an issue because it's spiked uh, and is now at Canadian bond yields is in the 4% range, which means you're going to see fixed rates not getting any cheaper. Wonderful. Now, of course, this inflation is being driven by things like gas prices and rents. CPI's accelerating annual growth was primarily driven by gasoline prices and shelter, which seems to be consistently making on that list as one of the highest things. So CPI's gasoline index increased 0.8 points and was the first in this past year. Rising crude prices tend to do that. Shelter costs were the other big driver this past month, hitting 6% annual growth in August. Stats Canada attributed this to the rent index, which accelerated 1.0 to 6.5% in August. Growth remains substantial in other areas, but didn't accelerate quite like rent. So there we go. Rent's taking the cake again. And Canadian inflation is expected to continue accelerating. It's on track to accelerate even further in their next report earlier this month, BMO, warned that rising gasoline prices were set to drive August CPI. They actually called it right on the nose. They said 4%, um, and that proved true. The bad news is they said um, that gas prices are 10% higher than year year above uh, year ago levels, and the headline reading is going to be higher. That's from Douglas Porter, the chief economist at BMO. Okay. Um, and in response to that and the way it impacts rates, talk to me about what OSFI is saying about these extended amortizations that we were just chatting about. You mean amore? Amortizations, right? Okay, so this title, this is from uh, Bloomberg here. 70-year amortization periods are not realistic, and that is from the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. A regulatory government agency has weighed in the reports of mortgage amortization spanning decades longer than the typical 25 years, saying those projections do not reflect a borrower's actual repayment period and do not change a borrower's contractual obligations. OFSI or the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions published a statement addressing reports of long extended amortizations for individuals with variable rate products and fixed payments, saying these reports are not entirely accurate and don't reflect the actual timeline someone will be expected to pay back their loan. 70 years versus 25 years, Dan. A little bit of a difference there, eh? Yeah, I mean, we're not doing 70-year mortgages in Canada yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> we are, I guess, by accident, apparently. But, I mean, this is this is a big problem. Like, it, I think people are really underestimating how big of a problem this is. All of these borrowers can't, they, they can't afford to, re, or maybe not all of them, but I'm assuming a, a good portion of these borrowers can't go in to lock into the fixed rate on a 25-year AM. Otherwise, they likely already would have. Um, right. And so I don't know how we solve this problem. I really don't. Anyway, OSFI goes on to say these kinds of projected amortizations are not realistic and do not represent what a borrower's actual repayment period will be. Importantly, they do not change the borrower's contractual amortization. OSFI said in the statement posted on their website. OSFI said the projected amortization periods do show how the changes in the interest rates can influence the repayment of the loans. 
the agency added that if renegotiating a mortgage entails extending the amortization beyond the period that had been agreed to, it is considered a refinance. And it is worth noting that when it's considered a refinance, it's often a requalification for the borrower. And that Mm. is difficult. And, And in a lot of cases, will the borrowers actually requalify? I would say that a lot of borrowers are going to have a very hard time requalifying, which will unfortunately present a whole new round of, of issues. So, I mean, you know, the, tr- the typical you're going to get from an A lender, um, the maximum amortization, the standard's more of a 25 years, the max you're going to get is 30 years. So when you start to see these things that, you know, in the news, like a 70, 80, or even 90 years amortization, that's that's shocking you know that that's gonna that's gonna scare people that's gonna confuse people and they have a right to be scared and confused because how does that even make any sense right yeah i completely agree i think it goes on to say this is a reality check for borrowers so amid heightened interest rates and other economic pressure some canadians are beginning to stretch their mortgage repayment periods beyond 25 years some periods as long as 90 years for an amortization schedule Rather, they're hypothetical calculations of the amortization period, which assume the borrower continues making the same fixed payments for the duration of the loan with the current interest rate. So what can borrowers do according to OSFI? According to OSFI, borrowers who fail to make it into this category, or sorry, borrowers who fall into this category can take actions to manage their debt loads amid elevated interest rates. Options include increasing mortgage payments, making lump sum payments, and renegotiating their mortgages, OSFI said. Now, these have already been offered to most people um, by their lenders in most cases. That's the other part. Yeah. I mean, the the fact of the matter is this is going to be a huge shock to a lot of homeowners and, and people just really need to start to prepare for this because sooner or later, that lender is going to come knock on your door and start forcing you or you know their customers to pay down the principal balance on those loans. Um you know, otherwise we're going to likely end up with like generational mortgages where not only do you inherit the old family home, you inherit the old family mortgage. And uh, I don't think that's the way we want to see real estate in Canada going. Who knows? I mean, a lot of people in our industry are pushing for longer and longer amortizations or longer and longer mortgage mortgages to make housing affordable um, as on a monthly payment basis. And we did see, I think, 30 and 40 year mortgages in the past in Canada. I don't necessarily think that that's a responsible way to take policy, um, but it's certainly like historically possible. Um, and, you know, I think one of the theses that we mentioned on the show as sort of an end game for Canadian real estate is that we end up with a renter's economy. And if you look at some of those European countries like you're describing, um, they are all very much renters economies. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, just to add to that in this situation, you know, if you are, if your mortgage is being, if your mortgage amortization is being extended, that essentially means that you are basically just paying rent to the bank, right? You, Cause be, you're not paying anything off of your actual principal on the house. You're just paying the interest portion. And if that interest portion is just, from you to the bank and you're not actually gaining any more home ownership, you're just paying rent to the bank, which uh, I, I don't know how much more renter's economy it gets than paying rent to the bank. Yeah, I completely agree. 
Um, okay, I think that's good for the news article here, Dan. Some bad news out there. Why don't we finish things off with something warm and fuzzy here, like we like we like to do? A little little review would you be, want me to pull up a nice. review? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely love the show. Dan and Nick are sharing some great info, all while managing to put a goofy smile on my face with their cheesy jokes. Oh come on, that's great. Ed. Cheesy? Did These you write this jokes. review? <laughs> It's a ghost written. They managed to hold my attention. An impressive feat in itself. I guess a fellow ADHD friend. Appreciate it. And they're helping to develop our education in the real estate investing world as we look to make our first step on this exciting journey. Thanks for all the great work, guys. We're looking forward to many more episodes. And this is from BC Dan. Did you write that? I'm not from BC. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, BC Dan. And, And honestly, everybody out there listening... I know it's a pain in the ass to go and write a review. I didn't, I've been listening to podcasts for years. I never used to go and write reviews uh, or even rate the podcast that I listened to for days and weeks and years on end. And then when I started a podcast, I was like, damn, I want some reviews. It'd be nice to get some recognition. So I went back and rated and reviewed all the amazing podcasts that I listened to. And it would mean the world to us if you could go and do the same thing. So you know what? I've started doing this with local businesses as well. Yeah, you're a one-star review guy. Aren't no, you? no, I'm not. Yeah, yeah like do the hate mail, <laughs> Yelp. No, like, but I've just started, um, you know, it's so easy to go around asking everyone for for Google reviews or whatever it is, but when do you ever just do that without being asked? And I'm not, this is completely outside of the context of asking you for a review, by the way, but like I've started just offering local businesses, like, or not even just doing it, right? Like giving them a five-star, if I had exceptional service, really mentioning somebody by name, yeah. whatever. But what I noticed, this is really fascinating. And this is what I would encourage anybody who does want to leave us a review to do is put your name or your business name or Instagram handle or whatever in the um, show notes. And we'll, we'd love to we'll return the favor. Yeah. Well, we'll read it, but we'd love to return the favor in some way. Cause I just started doing this and then people would find my business and give me a review. Right. And like, and so it's, it's like very much one of those reciprocity things where you shouldn't maybe do it with that intention, but I just thought it was really interesting byproduct of, of that whole thing happening. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, before we wrap up, um, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review, preferably five stars. Um, we know that for those of you just listening on Spotify, you can't actually leave a review. It's very much an Apple thing. And I think, um, audible, audible, audible you can leave reviews. Yeah. Yeah. For the 10 um, people to listen on. Audible, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, but if it's Spotify, just a five star, uh, rating would be really appreciative. And, um, Maybe take a screenshot and share it with, uh, you know, post it on Instagram and tag us because we'll share it and then other people from our audience can find you and, and chat with you. Uh, realestateinvestingcourse.ca, pretty self-explanatory. Realestatemeetups.ca, pretty self-explanatory. Realestatemerch.ca, pretty self-explanatory. No, and a theme here. Very, very simple domains. And, very uh, simple, guys. We just, we're just here dishing out the truth. And if you want links to all these articles that we, uh, that we covered today, they're in the newsletter, which the link, all of those links that I just mentioned are in the show notes. Thank you. We love you. See you next week. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317- Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.